Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Fair warning, friends. This episode has a lot of and me in it. So since that's important to the content, this is the last time we will be bleeping them. So if your coworkers are under the age of whatever age you deem appropriate to hear about then you might want to hit pause or put on the old headphones. NSFW. Woohoo. <clears throat> Public baths have been common around the world for centuries, particularly in cities. When and where they've been popular, they've meant different things to different cultures. They might be sites for socializing, religious purification, spiritual and or bodily cleanliness, relaxation and pampering, public health and hygiene, homosociality, and of course, sex, or some combination of those things. At the start of the 20th century, single-gender communal bathhouses were central to emerging gay communities all over North America and Europe. At the end of the century, those sites of community formation were associated with the rapid and devastating spread of HIV-AIDS, or as they still described it in 1981, the gay cancer. In 1984, the city of San Francisco ordered the closure of bathhouses, arguing that often anonymous and unsafe sex was at the heart of the bathhouse. Despite, or as community historian Alan Berube argued, because of the AIDS pandemic, Gay rights activists protested the closure of the bathhouses, just as they protested the harassment and closure of bars like Stonewall two decades earlier. The tension between the city government and some of the gay rights activists in 1980s San Francisco seemed to be centered on the AIDS pandemic and a public health crisis, but was just as much about the regulation of sex between men. In that way, the closure of the gay bathhouses in AIDS-era America echoes the closure and backlash against queer bathhouse spaces in places like uh, early 20th century Russia and Mexico. The bathhouse was a contested space because of its same-sex sexual activity, with or without the threat of the looming pandemic. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Friends, listeners, uh, we, like you, are stuck at home during the COVID pandemic. So we are uh, recording for the very first time in three, four, five years of podcasting, not in the same room. So this is going to be maybe a little different, although we can see each other's faces and that's where all of our action actually happens. So um, hopefully this isn't too different for you and hopefully you still enjoy this episode and our chemistry comes through because Mm -hmm. we have so much of it. (laughs) Bathhouses were often as important as bars to gay and to a lesser extent lesbian community development. I'm sure you could sit down and list a few reasons why, yes of course, bathhouses were gay hubs. These are homosocial spaces where nudity was not just encouraged, but expected, and the facilities included gyms, massage parlors, private rooms or stalls, steam rooms, and communal pools where you could soak next to all kinds of beautiful young bodies. Duh, gay hubs, sexy. 
But when the conditions may have been right for centuries, it wasn't until the 20th century that such facilities emerged as openly gay hubs. And in some countries, they still weren't and aren't today exclusively gay the way they were in the U.S. from the 1970s to the 1990s. The most interesting thing to me is actually how challenging it is to find records of queer subcultural movements that relied on or utilized bathhouses. In my own research, for example, there are no records of men in 20th century Dublin being arrested in bathhouses for same-sex sex, which was a crime in Ireland until 1993. But the bathhouses were there in Ireland as they were throughout the British Isles. In fact, the very first Romanesque Turkish bathhouse was built in County Cork in the 1860s, and similar facilities followed in Dublin and other Irish towns. I've yet to find evidence that those spaces were taken over by a same-sex desiring community, which doesn't mean it isn't out there, it just means we need to keep looking. More surprisingly, though, is that Matt Holbrook's research on early 20th century London suggests that same-sex desiring men did frequent bathhouses for sex, but there are no discernible records of the police raiding those the way they did bars. Scholars of other cities and cultures have found ample evidence of the bathhouse in queer subcultures. Victor Marcias Gonzalez has shown that Mexican bathhouses had a longer history of sexual industry and a particularly queer moment from the 1880s through the early 1910s before being stamped out because of the homosexual connection. Dan Healy, the historian of Russian homosexuality, writes that the Russian baths were very much part of the queer economic sex market until at least 1941. And in the U.S., community historian Alan Berube wrote extensively on the significance of the bathhouse to American gay culture and even produced an analysis for the California state legislature about why shutting the bathhouses down in 1984 was a bad idea. But the bathhouses are not, have never been, exclusively sexual spaces. Communal bathing, both in mixed and single gender spaces, has been quite common across cultures and periods. In Rome, particularly from the first century on uh, of the common era, the empire built spectacular public baths accessible to anyone with two pennies rubbed together, actually two denarii, the lowest denomination of Roman copper coinage, and that was the price to bathe. And on holidays, many baths were free admission. At the height of their power, the Romans threw money and talent at the construction of really decadent bathhouses. The grandest of these were huge complexes, offering various pools set at different temperatures with swimming pools, lounges for reading and relaxing, and steam rooms. While the wealthiest Romans often had baths in their own homes, they still bathed communally with friends, business associates, and the like. Communal bathing was social, a kind of vulnerability that made bathers equals for a time, and could be religiously imbued, particularly as many Roman bathhouses were paired with a temple. The best Roman baths were built around a natural hot spring, which was believed to be usually divine in origin. Similarly, in the Ottoman Empire, the public baths serviced the need of daily ablution rituals in Islam. A traditional Turkish hammam is a room that relies on steam, quite like the Roman baths rather than dry heat, uh, to cultivate the purification of its bathers. Ottoman hammams were very social spaces with rooms filled with cushions for relaxing after a good steaming. Sounds marvelous. Mm -hmm. Though, of course, men, women, and children used public waterways for a kind of communal bathing, facility-based communal bathing wasn't popular in the UK until the Victorian era. Public bathhouses were built to wash the unwashed masses in the early industrial era and were for many the only place where city folks could go to wash off industrial grime. In 1846, Parliament passed the Public Baths and Wash Houses Act, which permitted local governments to construct public swimming baths for the working class to use. But the more luxurious and private Turkish baths were intended for a more genteel bathing crowd. Turkish baths were advertised as cure-alls for everything from skin diseases to diabetes. By the turn of the century, private baths were widespread and entire towns were dedicated to bathing as a medicinal solution. 
Other cultures have communal bathing traditions that predate the Victorian Turkish bath craze. Actually, in Japan, before European influencers convinced the Meiji emperor that doing so was gross, men, women, and children bathed in the nude at their local sento or public bath regularly. Sento still exists in Japan today, though now in gender-segregated facilities. Uh, the truly communal aspect of the Sento is lost uh, in a lot of ways, and with the widespreadness of indoor plumbing, fewer and fewer Japanese visit the Sentos. In the 1990s, the bathhouses of Tokyo were frequented instead by foreigners more than Japanese, which was both a blessing and a curse to those Sento proprietors. Um, some foreign patrons, for example, didn't know the rules and customs of the sento and did horrifying things like getting into the soak tub before washing mm. or going in in their undies. Similarly, the Russian Vanya is a cultural institution that has survived czarist regimes, Soviet collapse, and modern Russia, whatever is going on there now. The large gym-like Russian bath facilities popular in the UK and the US are modeled on the late imperial banyas, which were standardized over the course of the 19th century. Traditionally, a family home would have its own bath, usually a two-room structure where the entire family would spend a Saturday sweating in the hot, dry heat of the banya. These were small and in the rural areas of Russia might even be feared because they were said to be the home of a spirit, the Banik, to which every third Banya belonged. For many Russians, though, the community or family Banya was a weekly or even daily ritual for health and spiritual cleansing. Whether in one of the small black banyas, named because they are built without chimneys and so were colored black by the soot and smoke of the fire, or in a public banya built of brick and overseen by attendants, the experience was pretty much the same everywhere. In the antechamber, one would, would disrobe and then robe when finished. <laughs> the bath itself is a space with a stove or fire heating stones, which is then doused with water to disseminate this like really hot, dry heat. The water evaporates, leaving behind temperatures of up to the optimal 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Gosh. Bathers recline in the nude, sweating profusely until they can take the heat no more. A wealthier bather might have a third room uh, or one of those larger sort of uh, city uh, banyas would have a, like a, several third rooms with a, a spring fed or or attendant filled pool to cool off in others would just go jump in the snow or find mm -hmm. a nearby pond or river to dip into before going back into the banya for another round the ritual of bathing in this russian style is believed to cleanse the spirit as well as to purify the body of toxins and filth at the center of the larger European and American adoption of public baths and healing bathing were new standards of public health. For much of the early 19th century, the miasma theory of disease transmission still reigned supreme. Though ultimately incorrect, the idea that diseases were transmitted through bad smells and bad smelling things is one of the reasons that we have wonderful things like modern sewer systems and why Florence Nightingale and mid-century nurses implemented cleaning policies in hospitals. In both efforts, those responsible believed that if they cleaned out the bad smells, they would clear out infections and diseases. By mid-century, British physician John Snow, ooh, John Snow, estimated or established that diseases were in fact caused by microscopic organisms, so germs, right? The germ theory, which caught on pretty quickly across European and American medical academies, changed the way that public health officials and doctors thought about health, medicine, and disease. Although, you know, when you think about it, I mean, I know, I know the miasma theory is, is wrong because they, they really associated the smell with the disease. A lot of the times things that are gross smell and you don't necessarily want to have like rotting bodies and things like that all over the place. So I don't know, they weren't completely off. Or even, you know, infections often smell. Smell, yeah. yeah. So clean the infection and then and clean you, the infection. Yeah, it's like, it's, like yeah. It's, it's building on it. Germ mm -hmm. theory kind of built off of that. 100%, 100%. Uh, but 
so while cleanliness didn't prevent disease because it eliminated these bad smells, it did have a potential to wash away all those right. germs that caused the disease, right? So fortunately for Russians, the emergence of germ theory coincided with a reorganization of Russian society. So Tsar Alexander II emancipated the serfs and created these zemstovs uh, or local councils to govern town and regional affairs, um, which sort of diffused power in a way that hadn't been seen in a really autocratic Russian society up until this point. While many serfs were still de facto tied to the land, others moved in droves to the cities in search of economic opportunity and a better life. And so this new urban workforce necessitated larger communal baths. In the old system, doctors also worked exclusively for the czar and his family. So there were like only doctors in the capital city at any given time. In the new system, doctors could be employed at the regional level, working for and with these zemstvos to provide care and public health policies for rural folks. And Russian doctors were quite excited that Russia had this pre-existing system of regular bathing, uh, but knew that for the bathing practices to be effective in curbing the spread of diseases and sort of keeping in line with this germ theory, the banya had to be standardized to the doctor's specifications rather than to those of the traditions. The bad news was, of course, that banyas were not standardizable. The black banyas or banyas that were common in the countryside were dangerous at the best of times. Many peasants couldn't afford the fuel to get the fire hot enough or didn't have the time each week to take the Saturday bath that was rumored to be common. It was far less common than doctors hoped. The best then that the docs could do was standardize the public baths built in cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Warsaw. They came up with rules as to how long someone should spend in the dry heat, what temperature the room should be, how often to return to the room after cooling off in a pool, and where the gray water should be expelled to, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But these large communal banyas were not like the traditional home or family banya. They were spaces where strangers could and did gather. The social aspect of the ritual expanded considerably for urban folks. And these facilities, as rife with sexual potential in anonymity as with business dealings and friendship, were the models that were then exported to North America. Although we should note that most Russian baths in the U.S. followed the settlement of large Russian and Jewish populations, particularly after World War II. So that's when we started to see Russian baths sort of in a Russian style, the banya um, start to pop up here. Uh, and while the explicitly gay bathhouses of cities like San Francisco shuddered in the wake of the AIDS crisis, uh, which we mentioned at the top of the show, many Russian baths survived to this day. They remain a sort of cultural touch point in Russia, something that like Vladimir Putin talks about, like Barack Obama talked about basketball bracket in the beer, right? The banya mm -hmm. is so diffuse in Russian culture that it's a marker of national identity and commonness and makes a regular Joe feel connected to the leader of the country, right? That's the mm -hmm. like that's probably one of the reasons Putin tells these stories, right? Yeah. And it holds on to some of those feelings in American circles. So among other pop cultural references, you probably recall seeing like members of the Sopranos crime family conducting business deals in Russian banyas. Um, more recently in an episode of the very hilarious Brooklyn Nine-Nine, goofy cop Jake Peralta meets a like shady Eastern European in a Russian bath to try and secure this confession of counterfeiting. The shady Eastern Europeans, he sees this banya as like a safe place where naked vulnerability makes equals of these two men. Jake, though, refuses to take his towel off because mm. that's where he's hidden the wire. So he makes up an excuse. His penis is horribly disfigured and, and gains <laughs> the other man's trust with what would have been, you know, like they like hug. And it's obviously like they're shirtless and they're in a Russian bath. So you're yeah. Oh, slippery and, and sweaty and oh, so intimate. But that's how he gains the trust of this guy. It's very funny. How shady of him. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Healy is careful to emphasize that the banya, though an attractive place to same-sex desiring men, is not wholly representative of the same-sex desiring experience in Russian history. Instead, from the 19th to at least the mid-20th century, the baths were epicenters of male sex work. The police virtually left the banya alone because they kept same-sex sex off the streets. 
Individuals who could, according to Healy, rent a private room in the finger bathhouses were able to indulge themselves without risking their reputations. The bathhouses were sites of what authorities called gentlemen's mischief. In other words, men who could afford to, the elite and the wealthy, could procure private space to pursue their same-sex sexual encounters. Until the late 19th century, sexual exchanges followed a very patriarchal pattern. So like master-servant, employee-novice, with the young acolyte performing the passive role in those sex acts. By the 20th century, prostitution shifted and, and subverted some of those traditional roles in the banya. Generally, the sex workers were the young men who worked in the banyas. They, though, might be the penetrator or the penetrated, the one who presented an erect penis for stroking or did the stroking of his client. There was more flexibility when the power dynamic was economically motivated and outside the realm of these sort of traditional patriarchal relationships. Individuals could sort of signal to one another a desire for a fling with no, no more than a significant glance. And those glances could transcend class, generation, and these other traditional hierarchies. Both Pollock and Healy discussed the Russian writer Mikhail Kuzmin, who wrote Wings, the first literary exploration of same-sex love in Russian. Though there are no steamy sex scenes, Kuzmin specifically identifies the banya as a site of a young, same-sex desiring man's sexual awakening of sorts. He was, notably, working as a bath attendant, a banshik. Guzman's novel was lambasted by Maxim Gorky, Leon Trotsky, and other critics for its decadence. The bathhouse scene seems, according to Pollock, to be based on Kuzman's own experiences. In his diary, Kuzman wrote of visiting a banya in St. Petersburg. On October 23, 1905, he wrote, In the evening, I had the urge to go to a banya simply to be stylish, for the fun of it, for cleanliness where he requested a male attendant over a female attendant, and he got Alexander, who had a bold and uninhibited gait. He was very, very tall, very well built, with just a hint of a black mustache, light colored eyes, and almost blonde hair. He stared straight at me, motionless, with a kind of mermaid look, not quite drunkenly, not quite insanely, almost terrifying, but when he began to wash me, there was no room for doubt. Alexander asked me, how do you like it? And they had sex. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, then they had they sex. Woo. Um, I actually thought about this topic because of a kind of famous image that I always find when I'm talking about queer spaces like the bathhouse and same-sex desire for my classes. Yeah. Um, and uh, Pollock dissects this image in his book. It's one of Carl Bula's photographs, and it shows, it's supposed to show the social intimacy and openness of the nudity of the banya with pairs of men in various states of engagement. To some, I guess, sure, it, it could look like, like normal everyday bros hanging out in the nude. Sure. Um, everyone seems quite comfortable at any rate. Uh, there's a couple at the center of this photo. One man lies on a bench, his hands behind his head, looking up into the eyes of another man who stands over him. They're both obviously completely in the nude. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this man who is standing over him is apparently washing the reclining man's penis with a cloth, as one does. As one does. The eye contact, though, is quite something. Um, but all just you know the intimacy it's just intimacy right on the right hand side one man sits on a bench while another man stands before him also they're both in the nude and the man standing is massaging the sitting man's head with his fingers um, and on the left one man pours water over another man while a third man sort of set back a little bit is clearly watching them with one hip jutting out and his knee kind of bent and his, his hand is holding something. It's hard to tell what, the, what, what it is from this distance, but it's about cubic height. And he's like staring at them as they right. pour water on each other. Yeah. It sounds intense. Yeah. I, I doubt we're going to be able to put that picture on the, on the blog. Oh, we're going to put it on the blog. Oh, <laughs> are we going to have little black bars all over it? I mean, you don't actually see any penises. All the, like oh, the, the okay. penis of the man who's being who's reclining and being washed, it's covered in a washcloth. I see. In I another see. man's hand. Okay. 
So I'm thinking undoubtedly many a Russian man in possession of said photo probably masturbated with it um, with a little difficulty, maybe. It leaves a little to the to the sensual imagination. But sure, it could it could just be a buddy shot of completely asexual bro time. Totally. Are there beers in it? There are no beers. <laughs> Not even any vodka. I don't know. Not even any yeah, vodka. <laughs> So many would not see the sensuality of such a photo or would willfully ignore it. As Pollock notes, one reason so many people were up in arms about Kunzen's novel was that he besmirched the innocence of the Banya. But while the reality was that the Banshiki most definitely provided sexual services to the patrons of the Banya, over the course of the late Imperial Russian period, the Banya was nationalized and desexualized in Russian mythology. From the 1860s to the 1880s, the sex work of the Banshiki was well documented in popular, medical, and other sources. But as public health officials sought to standardize and appropriate the bathhouse as a medical miracle, the Russian state and local governing bodies like the Zemstovs asserted a particular identity for the Banya. It was a quaint, significant, spiritually and physically healthful ritual enjoyed by all Russians, even though it was not really any of those things. But that's the banya that was exported to the U.S. with immigrants, and that's the banya that Gorky and Trotsky defended. Over the course of the 20th, 20th century, the banya was fused to patriotism and Russian identity. Now, in the late 19th century, proprietors in North America and the United Kingdom imported much romanticized versions of Turkish and Russian baths. In Britain, this was spearheaded by a man named David Urquhart, a diplomat and member of parliament who wrote a, a sort of travel narrative called The Pillars of Hercules about his time in Morocco. He quickly, uh, he, he had this vision of, of building these Romanesque Turkish baths, lavish in, uh, institutions in the UK. So he found a building partner and constructed the very first private bathhouse, St. Anne's Hydropathic Establishment in Blarney, County Cork, Ireland. By 1861, there were over 600, like two years later, there were over 600 hydropathic establishments in Britain. These often palatial institutions would ultimately serve a very different function from the public baths that many cities around the world built throughout the 18th century to accommodate the bathing needs of urban workers. The Victorian baths, in contrast, were spaces of elite primping and pampering from Mexico City to New York City, London to Moscow. As elsewhere, Mexico had bathhouses before the Victorian Turkish bath trend took off. Bathing regularly was one way that Mexicans established their superiority to Europeans. Spanish America quickly developed along divergent cultural paths from the home country, creating locally autonomous states and powerful resistance movements to colonial rule. When Mexicans of European descent traveled to Europe, they wrote home about how smelly and dirty the, the Europeans were, who bathed but once a week or less. And Mexico, mostly because of the tropical climate, elite Mexicans preferred to bathe daily. That Mexicans, even if by necessity, bathed more regularly than Europeans became a sticking point of pride and national identity. Bathhouses provided the facilities for all Mexicans to aspire to the elite levels of cleanliness. So the Turkish slash Russian style bathhouses that were built in North America and the UK in the 19th century were purposefully homosocial, right? In many cases, as in 19th century Mexico, gender segregation was one of the only aspects of moral regulation that were policed in the bathhouses. During the colonial era, bathhouses were under surveillance. According to Marcias Gonzalez, Christians and authorities feared that the nefarious sin of same-sex sex would offend God and bring divine wrath upon the realm. The church and crown surveilled convent baths, college pools, steam rooms, and suburban watering holes because such homosocial spaces were rife with sex. By the early 19th century, though, the surveillance practices had lapsed. Instead, authorities 
focused on preventing public opposite sex sex, enforcing single gender bathing, and apparently ignoring same sex desiring people in those spaces altogether. Between 1821 and the 1870s, a weakened state meant the lapsing of even the enforcement of single gender bathing. So in effect, those establishments could, if they wanted, operate as brothels, as many um, in Russia, the UK, and the US did, catering to both opposite sex and same-sex desire. So it's interesting that you see like Kunzman, Kunzman, he is asked, do you want a female attendant or a male attendant? Essentially, yeah. what kind of sex do you want in Russia? And we see the same kind of thing happening at the same time in Mexico. I think it's fascinating. Um, but at the end of the 19th century in Mexico, the US and the UK, bathhouse proprietors seized the opportunity to create really luxurious oases for their patrons. So they resurrected the model of the Roman bath, building warrens of private rooms, large communal pools of varying temperatures, with additional facilities for massages, wink, wink, mm-hmm. barber services, mani-pedis, body scrubs, and both fitness and lounging areas. So unlike earlier iterations of the baths, the Victorian era structures were often designed with common spaces like communal steam rooms and rooms with large soaking pools or swimming pools, but also most had private spaces, which was sort of uh, unlike the like 18th century public baths, right? Um, Including these sort of private baths, like rooms with a little pool where individuals could retire alone or with one or more others. Advertisements for these sumptuous bathhouses in Mexico City promise, quote, modern comfort and oriental luxury with fluffy pillows, divans, magazines, newspapers, books, and a well-stocked buffet table. Such spaces were really quite perfect for cruising, right? You know, like same-sex men looking for a hookup and then uh, slipping off to a private room to pursue whatever nefarious sin one might get up to. According to Marcias Gonzalez, by the 20th century, Mexican bathhouses were seen as sites of sexual license, irresponsibility, degeneracy, and scandal. As a result, some bathhouses backpedaled on their promises of decadent luxury, urging patrons to be in and out in 45 minutes, strictly forbidding sharing baths and getting too close to other patrons and other measures of regulation. So they were social distancing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Other bathhouses, of course, carried on with business as usual, procuring or protecting sex workers for paying clients. Bathhouses in Mexico, Russia, the UK, and the US were also spaces where race and class played out, both in sexual relationships and just in the gen pop. In Mexico, where bathhouses were primarily for Europeans and Euro-descended Mexicans, The private Turkish bath clientele were mostly men from middle and upper classes uh, who gathered in the baths to socialize, pamper, gossip, and close business deals. In terms of racial politics, as Macias Gonzalez points out, the bathhouse obliterated the pretense of whiteness that Mexico's mestizos had cultivated through uh, clothing and scents and cosmetics. In the bathhouse, where all of that was literally stripped away, the mestizo was constantly reminded of his social class and his his racial ethnicity. And that's undoubtedly part of what made the bathhouse such an alluring space for the social and business dealings of the Mexican elite. Their whiteness was all that they needed to establish their superiority. In bathhouses where sex was bought and sold, class and race were embedded in the exchanges. Class in particular is often a common point of negotiation in public sex. Young working class men, for example, made up most of the male sex workers of London and Dublin, and they were generally engaged by upper class men. In early 20th century New York City, the effeminate upper class men who sought sex with other men preferred working class straight fellas, cops, soldiers, sailors, dock workers, who otherwise would go home to wives but were good to go with a ferry now and then. In the U.S., it was rare for self-identifying queer men to seek sex with other self-identifying queer men. In Mexico City, class was inextricable from race. Mestizos and indigenous men were the service workers who couldn't hide their identities in the bathhouse. 
But it wasn't necessarily the working class or indigenous men who queered the bathhouses of Mexico by providing sexual services to the white patrons. Instead, according to Macias Gonzalez, quote, the effete material decadence of the bathhouse combined with its homosocial dynamic ultimately queered the space. Uh, Mexican bathhouses in the 19th century were the epitome of luxury, right? Men went there to be pampered, to gossip, to drink and eat sumptuous things, to get pedicures and waxed mustachios, and yes, maybe a rub and tug from a pretty young bathhouse worker. Um, Those indulgences were the problem. They were evidence to the people and to the government of Mexico that the elite men of the cities were too soft, too decadent, too effeminate. That their indulgences also often led to same-sex sexual encounters was almost an afterthought, as it had been throughout the 19th century, when the authorities were more worried about women sex workers plying their wares in the baths. So by the early 1910s, the Mexican government shut the bathhouses down entirely because they were too much of a, a danger to the masculinity of Mexico's elite. North American bathhouses ultimately took on similar characteristics as the Mexican establishments and were ultimately the target of local governments for similar reasons, that they catered to queer tastes, which clashed with societal expectations of gender and sexuality. According to Alan Barabay, the bathhouses in the U.S. evolved towards being exclusively gay spaces over the course of the 20th century. In the 19th century, when bathhouses made their debut in the U.S., Barabay notes that bathhouses were just bathhouses, where the natural conditions occasionally facilitated sex between men, but it was by no means a given and required lots of coded language and body signals. Up through the 1920s, though, some bathhouses were identified by same-sex desiring men as favorite spots. Favorite spots were bathhouses and YMCAs where managers and or cops looked the other way and men could go there and know that they would find other men seeking sex. Such facilities were frequently raided by vice squads. In the 1920s and 30s, the earliest gay bathhouses were established. These were bathhouses with private cubicles. Men could cruise the communal bathing spaces of the saunas, steam rooms, and pools, and then discreetly slip away to one of these private rooms, which had locks, and do that which men do behind locked doors. These early gay bathhouses were also frequently raided by police and vice squads. Some managers and owners fought to protect clientele, and those became the most successful of the early gay bathhouse models. Starting in the 1950s and 60s, the modern gay bathhouses emerged, with communal bathing largely falling out of favor elsewhere in the U.S., thanks indoor plumbing. And so bathhouses were after that just like exclusively for sex. Those first modern bathhouses, uh, like the Club Turkish Baths in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, were subjected to regular policing crackdowns and were really dangerous spaces in many ways because that was the height of McCarthyism, which was rooting out both communists and homosexuals and blacklisting them all. But these spaces also transformed with the gay rights movements. There were places where men could find sex with other men, but there were also social spaces. In the 1960s, as gay activity at the Y decreased, bathhouse activity increased. Owners installed fitness rooms, fantasy rooms, and a range of spaces that cultivated the sexual subculture in really new and exciting ways, in ways that even like the bars couldn't provide that same level of experience. Mm -hmm. Orgy rooms were installed in some bathhouses in 1967. In the 1970s, masturbation spaces in baths with video screening rooms for gay porn were set up. Men could meet, they could talk, they could organize, and yes, they could have sex one-on-one, in groups, in pools, on benches, in cubicles, in kinky fantasy rooms designed to look like jail cells oh goodness. or the glory holes of public labs or the YMCA steam rooms and anything else that was both meaningful to the mid-century gay experience and a total turn on. <laughs> Finally, in January 1976, the Consenting Adult Sex Bill went into effect in California. This law made same-sex in semi-private spaces, like locked rooms of the bathhouse, legal for the first time. 
The gay bathhouses thrived, and again, not just as sex spaces, but as communal spaces. Bathhouses hosted parties to celebrate Pride, Halloween, New Year's Eve for their LGBT patrons. They had entertainment nights. Notably, uh, Bette Mittler got her start performing in San Francisco's bathhouses. That is fascinating. And they provided services to the community. In San Francisco, the city clinic conducted STDs testing in the baths from the 1970s on. In 1981, gay men started dying of a mysterious disease known first as GRID, the gay-related immune deficiency or the gay cancer, and finally AIDS. The bathhouses responded quickly. According to Alan Barabay, in the early 1980s, many of the fantasy zones were boarded up and replaced with fitness rooms. The bathhouses handed out condoms and put up safe sex posters. Randy Schiltz, uh, the San Francisco Chronicler journalist who covered the AIDS epidemic more robustly than any other journalist in the U.S., wrote in 1983 that, quote, San Francisco bathhouse owners and representatives of gay bars and businesses yesterday pledged their support for what the city's public health chief has called the most intensive public health campaign in recent city history. The businesses all posted AIDS warnings in their establishments per health department guidelines. In a May 1983 article in the Bay Area Reporter, Mike Hepler reported that in a May 1983 article in the Bay Area Reporter, Mike Hepler reported that no one knows what causes AIDS, but many are afraid that like gonorrhea and syphilis, it is communicable. And therefore, the baths have come to represent a potential source of contamination. But are the baths a danger zone? Fucking around at the baths or anywhere is a risk factor, but not a proven cause, says Dr. Dritz of the San Francisco Department of Health's Communicable Diseases Department. But the more intimate contact you have with people, the more chance you have to pick up something from those people. While individuals for and against closing the bathhouses waged war in the newspapers throughout 1983, 72 San Franciscans died of AIDS complications. Every year, the numbers increased. There was a panic from within the queer community and more damningly from without. There's a fantastic book by Philip Tymeyer called Plain Queer, P-L-A-N-E Queer, and it's about the gay men who served as flight attendants from the 1950s uh, through uh, the AIDS pandemic and beyond. Though Tymeyer confirms that the disease was aided in its spread from coast to coast by sexually active stewards, including those who visited bathhouses, he dispels the mythology that Randy Schiltz, that journalist from the San Francisco Chronicler, um, constructed around a man named Gaetan Dugas. Dugas was a French-Canadian flight attendant, one of many same-sex desiring men who found careers and joy flying the skies of the United American and other airlines. Schiltz, in his book, sort of leads the reader to think that uh, Dugas is patient zero, like the mm-hmm. origin of the uh, of the AIDS epidemic in America. Um, and more specifically, I mean, some of the interesting things about Dugas is that he's a French Canadian. So he's like this foreign alien right. who has brought this disease from Africa to the U.S. via flights right because he's he's this uh what's it called flight attendant um but that's it's all like debunked and time Iyer completely debunks this whole made-up thing um mm-hmm. so dugas while he wasn't patient zero um he was sort of a, a shitty dude he he had unprotected sex with men when he knew he was sick with uh an s an std with 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 aids Ugh. So bathhouses, he told one doctor, were ideal because in the low lighting, no one could see his lesions, the physical markers of Kaposi sarcoma, um, one of the final stages of AIDS-related uh, deaths. Um, but such tales of willful spread of the disease were few and far between. And the Dugas stories wasn't known in San Francisco or anywhere else until Randy Schilt's book and the band played on was published in 1987. So there was no connection between the horror story of Dugas's behavior and the closure of the San Francisco bathhouses in 1984. Um, but there is a connection between Schiltz's book and the sort of longer term memory of gay bathhouses as vectors of AIDS. And that is significant in and of itself. 
So rather, the bathhouses were contested spaces and had been long before the AIDS epidemic. And the year before the officially mandated 1984 closure, the bathhouses were at the center of conversations for how to deal with the epidemic. As Christopher Disman has noted, there was evidence available in mid-1984 when the closure decision was made to suggest that there was no real correlation between bathhouse visits and AIDS risk. In 1984, there were 14 openly gay bathhouses in San Francisco alone, with average monthly attendance rates that ranged from about 3,500 to 1,200 patrons. No, 12,000. Yeah, to 12,000 patrons. Okay, so that's a lot. So resistance to the baths came from both outside the LGBT community in the form of city officials, police, and the like, and also within the LGBT community. Bathhouses represented a particular vision of gay sexual expression. For groups following in the footsteps of the Mattachine Society of the late 1950s, which sought to assimilate into hetero-like experiences of love and sex and life through monogamy, marriage, white picket fences, etc., the bath houses were problematic. In July 1983, Ron Huberman, vice president of the Harvey Milk Gay Democratic Club, wrote an op-ed responding to accusations that the Harvey Milk Gay Democratic Club was trying to get the bathhouses closed. Um, he said that over and over again, we have stressed that the bathhouses are not the issue, but they are simply a physical location for sex. Some continue to spread the rumor that we at the Milk Club are trying to close them. Goodness, anyone with an ounce of sense realizes that closing them would only shift individuals involved to other places, such as parks, glory holes, private residences, etc. We need to spread the news about this illness to our people so that we can protect each other. Even before the official closure, the media war definitely had an impact on the community's perceptions of the bathhouse. By the mid-1983, by mid some of San Fran's bathhouses had experienced a 50% drop in attendance. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. The fear propagated through the media was barely mi- mitigated by the return of fire from bathhouse supporters, even those like Huberman, who represented a very mainstream gay rights political organization. When the 1984 decision came down, most of the 14 bathhouses closed. Some ignored the order and some acquiesced because they were already dealing with the blowback of the uh, panic. Despite Ron Huberman's assurance that the milk Democrats were not trying to shut down the bathhouses in March 1984, Larry Littlejohn, who was a member of the milk Democratic club distributed a pamphlet that would that asked for an initiative to shut down all sexual activity in bathhouses a directive deriving from that petition eventually made its way to san francisco's health director dr mervyn silverman who made the call on april 9th to close the 14 gay bathhouses of the city he was supported by the mayor as well as members from a range of gay rights activist groups The closures were not enforceable, so it was sort of in the wind, because the bathhouses actually fell under the purview of the police department and not the health department. Mm. But ultimately, four bathhouses did close permanently um, out of that initial uh, announcement, likely a side effect of additional panic and anxiety that was created by Silverman's directive. Because by saying, we need to close the bathhouses, he was saying the bathhouses are responsible for the AIDS pandemic. Right. So it's not really surprising that such an announcement would have consequences for those businesses. Right. So the champions of the bathhouse as a social community building space didn't give up the fight that easily, but they had to fight both political machines and public opinion. Alan Barabay, in the immediate months after the closure, assessed the impact to the city of San Francisco and the efficacy of curbing the spread of AIDS by closing the bathhouses. He found that bathhouse patrons simply sought alternative spaces to have anonymous, often unprotected sex. One Oakland bathhouse owner reported that the weekend of the closure, business at his establishment increased 142%. Increased sexual activity in the streets of San Francisco meant increased arrest for public sex. 
And the YMCA was again a popular space for sex, leading to the November 1st, 1984 signs going up at the Central YMCA reading, quote, the Central YMCA is not a bathhouse. We will not function as one. And they closed their steam room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, Disman summarizes what ultimately ends up being a really convoluted and circular battle between various groups like the health department, the mayor's office, the police department, the milk Democrats, the bathhouse owners, bathhouse patrons, and others. He says, quote, in April 1984, the city tried to prevent the baths in San Francisco from operating as sexual spaces. And that October, it tried to eliminate certain baths entirely as sexual commercial places. In the end, the authorities were de facto successful. They succeeded in stopping gay men from having access to semi-private bathhouse spaces for sex in San Francisco. As both a celebrated community historian and gay rights activist, Berube recommended instead of closing the bathhouses, the city should use the baths as spaces to promote safe sex and safe sex education, that the bathhouses should be preserved as zones of safety, privacy, and peer support, and that the bathhouses were essential in the fight against AIDS. And public health officials tended to agree that education was the best preventative, but in those early years, before there was any kind of federal concerted national effort to understand and deal with the disease and, and epidemic, incorrect information and iffy education circulated alongside the bathhouse debate. In 1984, for example, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation published a chart of risks that identified fellatio with withdrawal before ejaculation as possibly safe. It is not. And according to Disman, in 1985, they, quote, took out ads discussing the uncertain safety of French kissing. It is Misinformation, safe. huh? It is safe for French kids. It is. It is safe. Yes. Misinformation and panic muddled the waters. The city of San Francisco responded to this early uncertainty by attempting to desexualize the bathhouses entirely through regulations. And in some ways they succeeded. If you grew up at the height of the AIDS epidemic in the U.S., then when you hear bathhouse, you probably think of these seething dens of iniquity where AIDS was spread by evildoers and innocents alike. And it's true that too many men contracted and passed on HIV when having unprotected sex in gay bathhouses. In one of the early CDC analyses of the spread of the disease, from which journalist Randy Schultz incorrectly identified Gaetan Dugas as patient zero, bathhouses were among several key sites of transmission. As infected men went to bathhouses in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco and had sex with other men, knowingly or unknowingly infecting them. As Disman points out, it was Schultz's book and the movie adaptation uh, from 1993 that shaped the American public memory of the bathhouses and the AIDS epidemic. In reality, high-risk sex was as likely to take place in private homes as in the baths. In the late 19th century, public health officials had strong opinions that bathhouses could have incredibly positive impacts on a nation's health. The Victorian Russian-Turkish bathhouse craze stretched around the world to immense popularity across Russia, the UK, and North America. In some cases, their health benefits outweighed potential moral challenges they posed, as in mid-19th century Mexico. Police and other authorities often looked the other way or accepted bribes and ignored what went on behind the doors of single-gender bathhouses. However, in the 1980s, American public health and local government officials eventually went the way of the Mexicans. Rather than reintegrating the banya into the national mythos like the Russians or ignoring the same-sex sexual activity behind locked doors as in the UK, Americans, like Mexicans, maligned the bathhouses for promoting what Americans at the time perceived as an immoral sexual quote-unquote lifestyle. As Christopher Disman has shown, the AIDS epidemic was an excuse rather than a reason for the ultimate closure of those establishments, and the long-term consequences have been interesting. In an effort to shut them down, city and regional authorities painted bathhouses with the taint of the AIDS panic. Now, when we teach the basics of the gay rights movement, for those of us who do that, and history curriculum leaves a lot to be desired on this front at the high school and college levels. 
The focus tends to be on the less overtly sexual spaces like bars where LGBT people gathered and forged common identities and communities. The bathhouse is more a footnote in that narrative. And certainly some of that boils down to the lack of source material to write those histories as suggested by Matt Holbrook or as I found in my own research. But I think it's also an effort to desexualize the identity politics of the gay rights movement. It seems clear to me that desexualizing the history of Russian bathhouses, of gay community development, or anything else strips it of its hard edges and messy truths. The end. That's really fascinating. So, I mean, is there any history at all of lesbian bathhouses? So there, well, there are, of course, single sex female uh, bathhouses, and there certainly was... um, sexual activity going on in there but Mm -hmm. no one has written that that's like finding even finding any information about bathhouses generally is really hard there's like a few articles and then there's like the the, a couple of books um about the russian ones in particular and there's only one real academic book about russian banyas the interesting what's the name of the movie that was made in 1983 it's got the same title as the book it's uh and the band plays on oh okay it has like a star-studded cast yeah. See, so, and, and this is interesting too, because when I, well, not when I think about like the spread of AIDS, but um, the movie, uh, what is it? Gia? Yes. Um, you know, like that, that's an interesting kind of side story of, of like, you is know, that Angelina Jolie, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. She's playing, you know, this, this famous model from the eighties who, who died of AIDS, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was from unprotected sex and sharing needles and things like that. Yep. Um, But just this kind of, I don't know, nineties version of, I don't know what the eighties AIDS panic looked like or something. Yeah. I mean, rent too, is an example. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because even that's like, I mean, it's a moving and sad and wonderful story, musical thing, but it's also really sort of desexualized in a lot of ways as well. Right. But that's what this people was, know. This was interesting. Good. And yeah, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of thinking about what you said about teaching gay history and, and leaving out the bathhouse. And yeah, I think it is a way to kind of skirt the actual sex, sex of it all especially in just kind of like a survey course. Yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering too, and that's why I kind of asked about like lesbian activity and, and, and bathhouses. It's very gendered. Oh yeah. And so you're not talking about the, the gay rights movement or yeah, you are talking about, you are talking about like you yeah. are talking about men, yes. you know, gay men rights movement. Yeah. Right. So you're, so in like today's context, when you talk about like the gay rights movement, it's more of a gender binary or a non-binary movement, right? But when you're talking about it in the 70s, 80s, 90s even, it's definitely male. Well, and I think that's in part because gay men put themselves at the fore of the narrative and made themselves the faces of the movement. Um, and even though, you know, lesbian women were working you know as women generally are behind the scenes and all of these things and and doing a lot of the work and trying and eventually some of those groups split off and form their own sort of radical separatist or uh, women's issues focused uh, gay rights movements mm-hmm. um, but that's certainly part of this right like the the AIDS epidemic at the beginning affected exclusively men gay men it seemed right um it seemed right right and that was the 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 face and the the campaigning um of the gay rights activists who were fighting to protect people and get people resources and um and the stigma and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. um and so yeah and to that point also the emergence of a history of lgbt history starts with gay men right yeah and like alan barabay being a prime example because he's one of these activists slash community historians who is one of the earliest people to start writing these histories and he focuses mostly on men he does include women in some of his work um and he mentions uh lesbian bathhouses um in his his chapter on the the gay bathhouses but it's not central to the narrative it's it's about men right and yes 
yeah it's it has its own mixed bag issues so thank you for joining us for this from quarantine episode uh we are still on all the same social media spaces you can join us at uh on twitter at dig underscore history on facebook in either our general facebook page dig history um or our dig history pod squad which is our uh members only club (laughs) for all of you sassy history lovers out there um you can join us on our amazing new platform uh himalaya which is a podcast consortium of sorts and you can become a member of us and support us uh, as uh, a member of our podcast and get access to ad-free episodes Um, you can also uh, check out lyceum which is a great new educational podcast tool um, that curates these lists of episodes on particular topics that if you're a teacher an educator of any kind and or you just want to like really dig deep into like victorian literature about monsters then there's probably a list on there for you so that's lyceum and himalaya um, both available in the app store download those and join us there yeah everything she said Thanks for listening us listening to this weird episode in which we recorded in different houses across Buffalo. Yes, our fingers are crossed that it it's going to work. <laughs> we love right. you. We miss you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. What's wrong? Dan is peeing really loudly. Oh, did I say inextricable correctly? I think so. I wasn't actually listening to that part. Okay, is inextricable the way you say it? Yeah, that's how I say it. Okay, good. But I might say it wrong. Well, that's the thing. I don't have Marissa here to to tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) Yup. Sorry, I had to think about that one. I know, that was a very jargony sex history sentence. Sorry. According to Alan Barube, the Barube. Spend huh? a Saturday sweating in the hot, dry heat of the ban- banya. banya. Banya, 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 banya. What am I saying? You're saying you said ba- you said banya most of the time. Okay, I shouldn't stop there. These are homosocial spaces where nudity was not just encouraged but inspected, inspected. Well, inspected and expected. <laughs> Encouraged and ex- okay. The police virtually left the banya. The banya. I'm sorry. I just want to say it's banya. What about in like Japan? Did you look at anything like that? Because yep. I know in a lot of um, uh, um, oh my god, what Japanese animation? Anime. Yeah. Like you'll see like communal bathing and stuff mm-hmm. or families bathing together. Yeah, like my neighbor Totoro. I think there's a yeah, scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, actually, that's the Cento, and we will talk about that. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I've covered everything. Ahead. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's right here. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.